0: Chapter 20, verses 22 through 26 is the sermon text. So these are the first words the Lord says to Moses when he goes into the darkness on the mountain, leaving the people there. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I re- record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Neither shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. And let us pray together. Father, uh, we thank you again that you not only spoke the Ten Commandments to the people and so to us through them, but uh, you continued speaking. Even though they asked you to stop speaking, you continued speaking. And those are words we're very interested to know. Everything you told Moses on the mountain. And we pray, O God, that those are the, the words we would listen to carefully as your people now as well. For you have very important things to tell us as you now apply the Ten Commandments to us. And so give us ears to hear, we pray, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I indicated last time, we're at an important juncture in the book of Exodus. Uh, we have considered the Ten Commandments. The Lord has spoken them from heaven. Uh, that's a phrase that will come up in the text, as you saw, and I'll make something of that. And then we saw last time what was the aftermath of that, the people standing at the foot of the mountain, and especially what their response was. Uh, and, and and that episode was concluded with Moses going back into the darkness and meeting there with God on the mountain. And there the Lord gives Moses important instructions to tell the people concerning his law. The Lord isn't speaking to the people anymore. He's speaking to Moses and saying, I want you to tell this to them. In essence... Uh, What we have here, as we will have later on throughout the Decalogue, uh, excuse me, not the Decalogue, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, so much of what remains uh, becomes an applied exposition of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Much as I gave in the preaching of those Ten Commandments, the Lord is applying them. And briefly here, let me give an outline of the upcoming material for Moses' encounter with God here last beginning in chapter 20, verse 22, all the way to the end of chapter 23. And it breaks down basically like this under four main headings. First, we have commands concerning divine worship with respect to the altar, which is our interest this time, Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. Divine worship, number one. Number two, beginning in chapter 20 uh twenty one verse one we have an exposition on the rights of the Israelites, so the people themselves, civil and social laws, chapter twenty one, verse one through twenty three thirteen. That's the most major uh, uh section of of this larger section and uh and we'll spend some time considering that. And then we have laws concerning the annual feasts as commanded by God. And so, again, dealing with divine worship, chapter 23, verses 14 through 19. And finally, there's a conclusion in chapter 23, verses 20 through 33, of God, in essence, stating his end of the bargain, what he is prepared to do for the people. So that's the basic structure of God's. Speech to Moses that he is to tell the people, which will take us to the end of chapter 23. But here our interest is solely with the first of these, namely divine worship. And here I would notice first that it comes first. That in expounding the law, the first thing that God wishes to emphasize It's not the duty we have to our neighbor or even the right, which we have ourselves in civil society, but the duty we have to God. And in particular, the duty with uh, we have to him with respect to his worship. This is a matter of, let us see, first importance relative to the duty we have toward our fellow man. God, the duties we have to God come first, which reflects, of course, the structure of the Ten Commandments themselves. God doesn't begin with our duty towards our neighbor. He begins with our duty towards himself. He does the same thing now in his applied exposition of the Ten Commandments. And here it would seem God is enforcing the second commandment in particular, the prohibition on idolatry. And so let me notice here that God is again emphasizing and stating the priority of his own worship, And if we were to ask why that would be, the answer is twofold. The first is very simply that God desires to be worshipped. And not just that he be worshipped, but that he be worshipped aright. And so uh, we are talking about true worship in contrast to false worship, which is what uh, Israel continually fell into. It wasn't that they didn't desire to worship, it's that they kept falling into false worship, which is, again, what we call idolatry. As God states in the second commandment, he is a jealous God. And the thing that he's jealous for in particular is his worship. Uh, That is to say, his right amongst his people, not only to be worshipped, but to prescribe the proper means and methods of worship. And so uh, what I'm saying is that worship is something that is important to God. And if we were to ask why it is important, in one sense, it doesn't matter. It just is important. That is part of the whole arrangement that God is expressing here. He is asserting his own priority and his own lordship in our lives. We don't get to bargain with him. If he says something is important to him, then that ought to be enough for us. But since God is an intelligent and rational being, we know that he has good reasons for all that he does. He always seeks the highest and the best end in all that he does. And to put it like that is... To answer our question, the reason his worship is important to him is because there is no higher end than himself. All that is good and best terminates in him, just as all that is good and best springs from him. And this is precisely what we recognize when we worship the divine being. We adore his majesty and perfection and proclaim that he alone is worthy of such adoration and worship, not the creature, but the creator and solely the creator. And that there is no higher end in all of uh, in all of earth or all of the universe than God himself. As you know, this is reflected in the first uh, shorter catechism question and answer. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him Forever. And in a sense, you could say the same thing is true of God himself, that God is glorifying and enjoying himself forever. And that is his chief end. And so it's our chief end. You see, we don't have different goals, us and God. We have the same goals. That's what we recognize in worship, that he is the chief and the highest end. But since we're so blinded by our sin and he is so lofty in his being. His spiritual essence. Who can comprehend it? Who can lay hold of it? And we are so lowly in our creaturely existence. The only way we could ever hope to know how to worship a being so lofty and so glorious and so spiritual. And to adore his majesty. To sing forth his praises and to confess solemnly that he alone is the Lord. The only way we could ever know how to do that. Is for him to tell us. Not for us to conceive of how it might be. Again, there is the essence of idolatry. But for him to tell us and then for us to do it. Only he can make such things clear. The ways which best glorify him. As the chief and highest end of man. Every human idea falls short of this. And so he's worshipped truly only. When we recognize that he alone is worthy of worship, the first commandment, and only in the way that he prescribes the second commandment and that everything else falls into the category of false worship. But the other reason this needs to be stressed right away is that there is no sin that man is more prone to and certainly Israel herself, as we will see, than idolatry. The history of Israel, as I've said many times, is one long, sad story of idolatry. And it doesn't take them long to fall into the sin. Not only does Israel worship false gods, first commandment, but she seeks to worship the true God by images. As the golden calf incident reveals, the second commandment. You see, it doesn't take her long to fall into that sin. To desire somehow to lay hold of God, a God they can see, a God they can touch. And so there was nothing more necessary and more important with regard to these people, given their sinful tendencies and dispositions, as we'll later see, than to emphasize this command in particular, the second commandment. Well, I've been speaking generally about it, but let us try to see what God says here, uh, how what God says here underlines the importance of these truths under these four headings. And we'll just follow the four verses. Verse 24. Well, I, I suppose there's. Five verses, but under four headings. And first of all, look at what he says in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, lest you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. It's a highly important statement. You notice before the prohibition is given against idolatry in the following verses, this positive truth is stated first. In this, we find the reason idolatry is forbidden and obviously nonsensical. It is because, God says, God spoke from heaven, and in this they saw no form. Now, I'm adding a phrase that we later find in Deuteronomy, but it's an implied truth. God spoke from heaven, and that's all they saw with regard to the divine essence. Well, they didn't see anything. That's all they experienced, I mean. They heard, but they saw nothing. And you might uh, think in terms of their experience having heard the word of God and nearly died. Imagine if they had seen him. Surely they could uh, they could not have borne such a sight. They could hardly stand to, to hear his voice if they had beheld with their eyes the divine essence. Well, they would have surely died. But as it was, God says, he spoke from heaven. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven, which underscores the spirituality of God as a being. That his form cannot be contained in an image man can devise. He dwells above the earth. He reigns and speaks to man from heaven. So his essence cannot therefore be contained or represented in earthly form. As Kylan Dillich say, he made known to the people that his nature was heavenly. And could not be imitated in any earthly material. And so God's people, for God to say, I spoke from heaven, is to say, you saw no form. It's also to say, you ought to have been content with what you heard. You ought to have been content with the word of God. And even that, you see, proved too much for them until it was once again mediated by a messenger, Moses. But even then, you see, the emphasis remains here to Moses. You speak to the people. The emphasis, again, is upon the word of God. You shall say to the children of Israel these words that I tell you to say. And so the first principle that we find in verse 22 is that God speaks from heaven, which is his method of communing with his people. And the very method itself rules out the possibility of idolatry. If you comprehend what it is for God to speak from heaven. You will understand why idolatry, something that God forbids, something that God detests. If God wished to be known by images, he might have said so. But as it is, he wishes us to know him purely by his word from heaven. Again, that is how he communes with his people in a spiritual fashion. He being a spiritual being communes with us spiritually through divine speech, which today we find in scripture and in preaching. And so here he makes explicit what is implicit in the second commandment. He tells us why images are false and wrong and sinful. It is because a heavenly being cannot be represented with earthly substance. And it is because God's word, his heavenly speech, ought to be enough for us. The second point is found in verse 23 where we find the prohibition. You shall not make anything Uh, And I'm just going to take out uh, the italics from the New King James. I believe the King James doesn't have it at all. And the italics is supplied. It isn't found there in the Hebrew. You shall not make with me gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. Which is, again, a restatement of the second commandment. It's noteworthy how God makes it. Again, taking that italics phrase out. You shall not make with me. As though the true God, a spiritual being, could be made with silver or gold. Of course, this is exactly what we find Israel later doing in the incident of the golden calf. But God forbids that here. The specific form of idolatry is forbidden here as in the second commandment is worshiping the true God through images. Again, not worshipping false gods, but worshipping the true God through images. You shall not make with him images of gold or silver. The the sinfulness of this is seen again in in the sense that he cannot be made of such things. He already exists as a spiritual being and we ought to worship him as a spiritual being. We find him speaking from heaven and yet we seek more. Is it not enough for God to speak to us? Are we not content for the divine mind to reveal the divine essence through divine speech? But then thirdly, we find. And I think uh, we reformed Christians will uh, find a certain delight in this third point. That God places a premium on the simple as opposed to the ornate. Verse 24a and verse 25. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offering and your peace offerings, uh, your sheep and your oxen. Verse 25. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. We find here the emphasis on the altar, which was in the Old Testament, the place of worship. It's a common refrain in the Old Testament, the altar, the building of the altar. If you think of the life of Abraham, for instance, when he met with God, or I think better to say when God met with him in a certain place. What we read throughout Genesis is that he built an altar there. And that's what God is referring to here, not places the people would choose to build an altar, but places that God would choose for them by manifesting his presence there and meeting with them as he had done with Abraham. And when that happened, they were to build an altar on this on this altar. They would make their sacrifices to God, he says. But even here, you see, when he mentions worshiping God and constructing an altar. God is aware of the danger of idolatry. As soon as man begins to construct anything at all, the danger enters in. The danger here being that they would be tempted to to construct elaborate altars and to think that the value of their worship consisted in the elaborate nature of their altars and that God would, as a result, somehow be impressed by what they could devise themselves. The better the altar, the more beautiful, the more innate, the more they imagine it was glorifying to God. And, And you can imagine immediately how that sort of thing is present today. In the grand cathedrals of the high church. Against this tendency, God says, make it as simply as possible. Simply, again, they're altars. Simply a raised mound of earth or a pile of stones. Nothing more. Resist the urge to make it ornate and beautiful. How difficult that is for man to do. For as Matthew Henry says, The beauty of holiness needs no paint. Here again, God was underscoring the sin of idolatry or the sinfulness of idolatry. He was reminding them that what made these places where he met with the people special was his presence. Which was spiritual. It had nothing to do with their altars. But you see. Just as soon as we begin to devise anything with our hands and with our tools, we begin to admire it. We begin to think of our contribution to the whole arrangement, the tool in the hand, how dangerous it can be. Every time man does anything, he imagines his works merit something in the presence of God. Again, against that tendency, God says, make them as simply as possible. Two further points can be made here. One, which I've already said, was that man was forbidden to make any, uh, to make them uh, wherever he might choose. Only such places where God met with them, 24b. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. Those were to be the places where the altars were to be built. Again, you notice the element of man is taken out altogether. In the Old Testament, it was not just the manor, but the place of worship that God decided But then the second thing. We find God also making this interesting statement in verse 26. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. You realize he's obviously saying the same thing. Make this simply as you can. But he's stating in a very interesting way. He's saying, keep the altar low. Resist the urge to build a grand and a great altar which ascends high. Which, of course, is what man always wants to do, as though uh, man could reach into the heavens by the height of his altars and lay hold of the divine essence. Well, we notice in this phrase two things that God seems to have in mind, lest uh, or that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The high altar. The first is Babel, which you must have had in mind in what I was just saying. Where, God, where man imagined this very thing. That we'll build a tower that reaches into the heavens. And, and thereby we will lay hold of God himself. We will be able as man to lay hold of the divine essence. A tower that reached into heaven. How does God feel about such things? He hates them. That's what we find at Babel. That's what the history of man proves over and over again. But we also find in the reference of the nakedness. Which is the point that is the most perplexing. Uh, you must have thought that as well. Uh, but it really is obvious in a way that God is referring to the garden. So there's a reference to Babel. There's also a reference to the garden where we read two things about the nakedness. First, that they were naked and they weren't ashamed. Uh, ashamed. But then after their fall into sin, uh, God's presence made them hide themselves. In other words, they now were ashamed as two people who were naked in the presence of God. They were naked and not ashamed only to become ashamed once they had sinned, ashamed again in the presence of God. And thus nakedness becomes synonymous with sin. The fact that man is exposed in the presence of God. And there's nothing that man is able to do ultimately to hide his shame. Nakedness being synonymous not only with sin, but the shame of sin in the presence of God. And yet imagine a naked sinner. Seeking uh, to build a tower into the sky as though to expose himself before God rather than lying low humbly in the dust where he belongs. And so the thought here becomes don't build your altars too high, lest you like those at Babel and your parents in the garden expose your own nakedness before God better to be clothed in the dust where man belongs and of which you were formed Build the altar of the earth very low, God says, and do not think that your communion with God nor your sacrifices are made more acceptable by anything that you do. Indeed, to seek to add anything to this transaction is to be found naked and ashamed in the presence of God, bankrupt and exposed as a sinner, a worthless, shameful sinner. Let the strength of your worship come not from man, but from God. But finally, there is this promise made in the same, uh, the same statement, second part of verse 24. Uh, not the same statement, excuse me, I read that two points ago, not in the last point. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. God is not only saying that his places of worship, his altars, must come at his appointment, But he's also assuring them that those very places will become places of blessing. In other words, the idolatry of false worship is found in the fact that it has no warrant from God. And in the very attempt to locate God in the image, man vacates the actual spiritual presence of God himself. In the very attempt to lay hold of God through images, man drives away the presence of God. Oh, but look at what God says will be true when the place and the practice has his warrant. I will come to you and I will bless you and ask yourself, what is better than that? What could possibly be better than for God to meet with us in the hour of worship? His loving kindness is better than life, beloved. And if that's not what we're seeking in worship, then we had better reevaluate a reason for coming. Whose work are we seeking to admire, our own or the Lord's? As we come, we are seeking him. We want God to be worshipped, but we also want in that transaction to be blessed by his presence. We are seeking to commune with a spiritual being in a spiritual manner. And what God is saying is that spiritual communion is real communion. That God really is in the midst of his people. You needn't worry about the blessing. If only you follow my commands. And so to use the language we were using in our study of the Ten Commandments. We have here the positive precept. As well as the special blessing attached to those who obey. The positive precept is worship at my command. Do not add or take away. Simply follow the divine precept. And then you will find the blessing in all places where he records his name, all places that is of true worship. And that is something that is always true. It isn't just confined to the Old Testament. We find the same teaching, of course, in the New Testament. Jesus tells us, as we all like to quote so much, that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. It's the same exact promise. But we sometimes ignore the context in which the promise was made. It wasn't just two or three Christians getting together and doing whatever they thought was right. If you thought that, you've missed the point in Exodus, but you've also missed the point in Matthew chapter 18. And what it is that uh, invokes the divine presence and makes us certain that it is present. Why were they there gathered and found with him? Uh, or or, or uh, why were they gathered, I mean, and found him along with them. These people God, uh, Jesus is speaking to in Matthew chapter 18. Well, they were gathered together, just as God was commanding uh, Israel here to do the master's business. They were obeying his commands, which in the case of Matthew chapter 18, where he uttered these words, involved the solemn act of church discipline. In those very verses, we find our Lord's teaching on that subject. And this is what he says in full. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector, surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Well, Jesus is there telling us uh, to do something that many of us lack the heart to do. Certainly in the church today, in Christian worship and in Christian assemblies, you are meeting in the name of Christ. You aren't meeting in your own name, but you are meeting in the name of Christ, which means he is Lord and he is the one who sets the agenda. And we really only rightly bear that name when we obey his 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 commands. But that also means gathering together in his name that there are some who are unworthy of the name through sin and unbelief and impenitence, uh, who will have no place in that assembly. They don't belong. You try to reason with them. You go through this gradual process. But eventually, you find they will not listen and they will not repent. And so Jesus says, you cast them out. You're, You're to regard this person as a Gentile and a tax collector, one who has no place. And it is attached to that, the church doing the business of her Lord. At his command, that he adds the promise, wherever two or three of you are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. And the point Jesus is making is that as Christians come together to do the will of God, that he is in it. He's there in the midst of his people. It's exactly the same thing that God is saying in Exodus. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. I will be there. You can count on that. And the reason is important. It's because he will honor all those who bear his name. And in doing so, seek to do all that he commanded them. He is, of course, describing uh, Jesus now in Matthew 18. He is describing as God in Exodus chapter 20, his own communion as the resurrected Lord with the earthly church. It is a communion that he keeps up constantly Wherever his will is being done on earth, wherever Christians are gathered together in his name, doing his will. What he's saying is there I am in the midst of the people, communing with them, blessing them and adding my power and authority to whatever actions they take in my name. Whether adding to or subtracting from the number of the church. But you see, none of this works. The spiritual presence of God and the blessing of a spiritual God. None of this works when we try to manufacture it by the altars which we build. When we try to to commune with the risen Christ by our own beautiful altars or with the works of our own hands. It only works, which means we only find the blessing. We only find Jesus in the midst of the people when we follow his own commands. And so we find again very simply that God promises to bless only what he ordains. That is the point. A point that uh, we as Reformed Christians know well. At least we ought to know. I've just stated in essence what we call the regulative principle. But it bears repeating. Because we uh, too are like these Israelites. Our hearts are prone to idolatry. And we're apt to forget. But if we truly comprehend what God is saying here. That God is a spiritual being and that the divine essence cannot be represented in earthly form. God is a spiritual being who dwells in heaven and who speaks from heaven, which is also true of the resurrected Lord Jesus, who dwells now, yes, in bodily form. And yet who also dwells spiritually with his church now by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. If we understand that. Then what we want to know is not whether God is impressed with the beauty of our worship, which is, again, the fallacy of the high church today, the beauty of our buildings and our altars and our works. The only thing we'll want to know is whether God is in it. Is he still speaking today from heaven? Is he, are we still able to hear his voice? And can we find any evidence that the promise still holds as found in verse 24. I will come to you and I will bless you. And the answer to all of these questions is yes. Yes, he is still speaking today from heaven. Yes, we are still able to hear his voice. You just think of what is said in Hebrews, quoting Psalm 95. If today you hear his voice. And we know that especially that the promise still holds. I will come to you and I will bless you. To quote Matthew Henry once more as I close. Now under the gospel. When men are encouraged to pray everywhere. This promise receives its full extent. That wherever God's people meet in his name to worship him. He will be in the midst of them. He will honor them with his presence. Amen. And let us stand together and sing uh, the words of him 271.